Welcome to the joy thrill ride of Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm the slammer that just missed sharing my story, Joy Zare. On this podcast, we spin some epic yarns. It's the slam from the fifth show in our action theme season, Spin, held on March 28th, 2017 at Jump in downtown Boise, Idaho. During the slam, we spun the bottle, and instead of a kiss, the brave few gave us a five-minute story. Except me. I was the last name. I just got to come up and read this intro, but hey, it's story time. And the story you're not going to hear was about not spinning out of control on the bogus basin road in the middle of the winter. Ladies and gentlemen, our first slammer, Roby. All right, hi everybody. Uh, so it's 2007. I'm uh, in the summer after my freshman year of college, uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to do working as a fly fishing guide in Idaho. Uh, in Yellow Pine, which is near the Frank Church, it's like, you know, that way. Um, and as part of my job, I guided people on fly-out trips to the Middle Fork of the Salmon River in the Frank Church Wilderness. And these are good, good trips. You know, people at that time were coming from all over the country to spend three or four days in the backcountry camping, and then we'd take them around fishing. Um, and we would fly in all our supplies ahead of time in a Cessna 206, which is like a big flying Suburban. You know, big propeller on the front, but kind of suburban body, not especially aerodynamic, uh, some holes in the floor. Uh, and the pilot was this guy, Barry, who was like 65, 70, um, going, you know, between the mountains back to this dirt landing strip. So I was on one trip to fly in our equipment to set up a spike camp. Um, and we load everything up. It's myself, my friend Sam and Barry, and then a bunch of equipment. So wall tents, coolers, food, etc., to get in uh, ahead of a group of clients for the next day. So, you know, Barry fires up the plane, like twisting all the knobs and gauges and then kind of roars to life. Propeller starts spinning. We start climbing up out of the Johnson Creek Valley uh, where we started. And 2007, you know, for those of you who have been here for a while, was one of the largest fire seasons on record in Idaho. So we've just got these huge 40,000 feet high plumes of smoke in the wilderness. So we're climbing, climbing, climbing to get high enough that we can get around all this smoke. We ended up going way south of the normal route to get back here. And we're in the plane going up over sort of the last ridge to drop down into uh, the drainage to get to the salmon. And the plane just goes completely silent. <laughs> Propeller stops spinning, no power. And because it's a flying Suburban, you know it immediately. Like, the thing just starts going down tail first. And Barry, bless his heart, is going crazy at the controls, trying to fire this thing back up. And I think it was a total of like 15 seconds. I'm, I really have no idea um, what it was, but the ground was getting closer. And I mean, obviously, I'm here now, so <laughs> he's. He started the plane, 
um, the thing just roars back to life. Um, we gain altitude and then just kind of glide back down. And Sam, Barry, and I were just completely silent for the remaining 10 minutes of the flight. Nothing but just like the of the plane. Uh, and we come around a corner and land, um, which is an adventure in itself, but we get that done. And Barry just looks at us and goes, oh, come on, you guys. Like, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> and Sam and I are like jumping out, kissing the ground. So, um, so needless to say, I took an internship in finance in Chicago <laughs> after the summer after that. That's, that's the story. The bottle has chosen Dennis Wolf. Um, my folks, after my dad retired, moved to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. And they had a lovely home down there. And we always would go down to the beach and if you've ever been on the beaches along the Atlantic, there's a, always a tide spinning along the shore, and along come the porpoises. And the porpoises come up close to the shore, and they make a big circle, a vortex, to collect the fish and that's how they get their food. They go feed themselves on these fish in the uh, vortex. Well, my dad passed in 2008 and my mom in 2012, and, and so the, a couple months after my mom's funeral, we, uh, my brother and my sister and I, and our spouse, spices, um, <laughs> went down to the um, uh, house to, you know, share everything. And my sister didn't want anything. She says, oh, this would look so good in your house. Oh, this would look so good in your house. So, so she ended up with almost nothing. But um, my brother and I ended up with tons of goodies. Um, so when, uh, in the evening after we had done some work around the house. I don't know if any of you have been down to Hilton Head, but there's a golf tournament there every year, and they always show the lighthouse at Harbortown. And adjacent to the lighthouse at Harbortown is a pier that goes out into the Calabogie Sound, um, and there's all the boats and everything that come up there. Well, my wife and I walked out to the pier and we were walking back, and this, this dolphin comes up. And it's coming right toward us. We're walking along the pier, and the dolphin is coming up toward us. And I said, I told you my, my mother loved to go along the beach. My mother always loved the dolphins, and she used to basically attract them. So we were walking along the pier, and this dolphin comes up, and it's circling around as we're walking the pier, and it looks up at us. So of course I had my camera with me, 
and I took a picture of it, and we walk along the pier, and again, the dolphin just follows us. So we knew that my mom's spirit was there, and that dolphin showed us that she was around. Thank you. Ann Ledbetter. I was a caboose child, they call them. Uh, when you are a way afterthought in your family, like all your siblings are a lot older. And um, my brother, who I adored, was 12 years older than I was, and I um, was more like an uncle to me. And I don't have any memories of him really growing up where it was just me and him. It was always family gatherings and um, trying to hang out with he and his friends and get some attention, you know. And But um, I have one memory, probably my only memory, where it was just he and I. And that was when he took me to the county fair. And um, he was 19, and I was seven. And I felt so privileged to be in his company, just me and him. I'd never, he'd never deigned to spend any time with me one-on-one. Um, -on -one. Um, he used to babysit for my sister and I, who was seven years older than me, and he would um, give us cigarettes and and set the time, the clocks ahead, and then tell us it was time for bed, you know, that kind of thing. But he never, it was never just he and I doing something. And um, we went to the county fair, and I was just all a flutter. Like, I, I wanted to be like his friend. I wanted to, you know, hang out with him and have him like me. And um, he wanted to go on the roller coasters and the, or the, the more scary, not the roller coasters, the, like the hammer. This is what made me think of it, the hammer and the centrifugal force one. And I was too scared. And so he went on. He agreed to go on the Ferris wheel with me. It was so exciting to me to just go on the Ferris wheel. And it was so boring for him. Um, so in retrospect, I thought, what a nice thing. Because he was like a guy who was kind of like a hoodlum, and, and he he never would um, do something so dorky as go on a Ferris wheel with a with a seven year old, you know. And, and um, but he made me feel really special that night, and so I I hang on to that memory, and and also of him buying me uh, cotton candy and not criticizing me and not make me feel dumb for wanting to do the things that I wanted to do at the fair. And um, he was in college when I was in second grade, and so I didn't get to spend that much time with him. He was off. He went away to college, and I never saw much of him except for on holidays. And. Um, 
by the time I graduated from college, he'd been diagnosed with leukemia. And um, I never got to spend any real adult time with him. And so I just hold on to the one memory that I have of him of spinning on the Ferris wheel. Tim Chismar. Thanks, appreciate it. It's, uh, it's pretty terrifying. I don't know why you have the, uh, the, what do you call them, slammers? I don't know why you have the slammers go after the featured performers who spend all this time, you know, making sure that their stories are really good. And then I was supposed to come up off the top of my head with something I was just, yeah, you know, what the heck? Let's give it a shot. How am I supposed to follow that? I, I'm awful on a bike. I haven't proposed to anybody, and I've only danced with one black man. I'd rather not talk about it. <laughs> what happens in Vegas, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I did think that there was something that I would, that I would talk about, and uh, I was pretty sure that's what I was gonna do, but you don't choose who you sit next to. And, uh, and so this guy right here asked me, what's the story about how I ended up in Boise? And uh, I started telling him, and he goes, that's a great story. So then I'm like, maybe I'll tell that story. So I'm gonna tell that story. Uh, it just so happens, uh, you don't get to pick your family. Uh, my mother spent her 20s in prison. Uh, she had stabbed someone nearly to death. And uh, I was raised on welfare, and things were very tough. Uh, I didn't know my father when I was growing up, and we were very poor. A lot of people say that, but I was the kid that she sent next door to ask the neighbors for bread, you know, because uh, she didn't know how to manage money. So we would go through the welfare check in the first two weeks, and then literally be eating like a plate with peanut butter on it the last two weeks. So uh, good times. And... I, uh, I met my father when I was 18, uh, very briefly, and, uh, and he passed away uh, not too much longer after that. Um, I only tell you that to let you know that I really wanted to get out of that situation, and I, I never was given the importance of family. Uh, that wasn't something that was hammered into me. You know, the whole Thanksgiving dinners and Hallmark movies was not something that I've actually experienced in my life. That's something that I watch and I'm like, no, it doesn't. And I've, I've <laughs> and I, I've only seen uh, pain and, and, and anguish come from a lot of family situations. Um, so I, I really wanted to, to do something bigger than where I was at. So I left Northwestern Pennsylvania after I got my bachelor's degree. I moved to Hollywood, California. And I went into movies and, uh, and uh, stand-up comedy. And I wrote some screenplays. And I did a whole bunch of stuff because I thought that was going to be the answer. I was going to be the Hollywood guy. And when I was the big Hollywood guy, nothing else would matter. And so I spent the last 10 years in Hollywood being the Hollywood guy. And I, I've done some stuff on TV and I've been in some movies you've never seen. And, <laughs> and it was not fulfilling and I was not happy and I was really depressed the last couple of years on things that you, you can't explain to somebody because it sounds like it's, uh, uh, like it's successful unless you actually live it. Um, like I've been in uh, pilots for television shows uh, that never aired. <laughs> I shot six episodes of a TV show for the Country Music Channel. You'll never see an episode. 
I've written movies that you'll never see. Um, and, and so this is very frustrating. And some people look at that and they're like, well, yeah, well, you got paid for it. I didn't say I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't say I wanted to be an accountant. I didn't say I was money motivated. I went there for the art and for the passion and for the stuff that got beat out of me. And uh, one of the examples is all you want when you want to be an actor is to have an agent and representation and a manager. I fired my manager a few months before things uh, hit, this, hit the big time because uh, in a conversation where he was trying to convince me not to fire him because I fired him and then he thought I was kidding. And like a couple of days later, he called me back about some gig and I was like, I, I, f I fired you. And he, I guess that's what people do in Hollywood is like you get in these big blow ups, but they don't take it seriously. Well, I really did want to fire him. And he tried to convince me to keep him by saying that he saw me as the next Chris Farley. Now, old Tim, Tim, who just moved to Hollywood, would have, would have been like, of course, that's great. That's all I want. Host, that's all you want, right? That kind of a career, yes. Chris Farley knew Tim, who had been beaten the crap out of by Hollywood. All he heard was, great, I can be an obese man who dies of depression. <laughs> that's what I want. So I, uh, I sold everything I had in my apartment and I decided I was gonna take a writing gig in Billings, Montana. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I didn't at the time. Um, I know now. I, uh, that, was, that was two months ago. So I, I sold everything I had in my apartment, I loaded up my car, and I drove from, uh, from North Hollywood, 21 hours straight to Billings, Montana, to accept this position where I would write for somebody and I would live at her place. And it lasted four days before she decided, get out. And so I was sitting in my car in Billings, Montana, in the snow, thinking, well, am I gonna go back to California where I wasn't happy? I'm not gonna go back to Pennsylvania where you know things were so rough. So I, I genuinely didn't know what to do with my life and uh, where I was at. So I did something that I, you know, I just don't do. Uh, I called my, uh, my aunt. My, uh, my father's sister, who I've spent maybe, you know, I had spent no time with in my entire life, but she was, um, I don't know why that's funny, but all right. <laughs> Got chuckles here in the front row. Uh, so, so anyway, I called her up and she, she's wise and she's intelligent and she has her stuff together and she, she understands life. And, uh, and I said, hey, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And she said, come and, and visit me. And she lives here in Boise, and I came to visit her, and I haven't left. And it's been two months, and uh, what she's saying is, uh, you know, what you're looking for is, is real people and real life and integrity. And uh, so that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to find, and I, I think I, I need it. And I don't know what that has to do with spin, but I think this life has been a crazy spin, and I'm enjoying the show, and thank you for letting me talk. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our story party. Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger, with big-time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. This project is supported by public funding for the arts through the Idaho Commission on the Arts, the Idaho Legislature, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We also receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. 
Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Lunchbox Wax, and the spin show sponsor, Upcycle. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Our musical guest is DJ IGA, the independent grocer. And show photography is by Paul Budge. Shout out to our marketing guru and co-founder, Jessica Holmes. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. <laughs>